So we will be back in uh, John chapter 10. And uh, we actually finished up with uh, the section, uh, I think we finished up with verse 21. But I'm going to read 19 through 21 again, and then I want to I hit something there that I didn't last time before we move on. Um, so remember, Jesus has basically been in this temple area of Jerusalem uh, since the middle of John chapter 7. And there's been all of this controversy because of the things that Jesus has said. Come to me if you are thirsty and, uh, you know, the water that I give you will be, become or will spring up or, or pour forth from your heart. Um, and uh, then he said in John eight twelve, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. And so we're used to those statements, but those are big, bold statements, especially when they're being made in the middle of this very important festival that had a ceremony of water. And he was probably commenting as they were pouring that water out right? Uh, they're using that ceremony primarily as a kind of as a way of thanking God for providing water in the wilderness because the Feast of Tabernacles was about remembering that God cared for them when they were in the wilderness. It's, you know, there are a lot of good things that we can learn from these Old Testament uh, feasts or festivals because what they taught the Jewish people, they can teach us. God provides for us when we're in the desert, right? God takes care of us when we're going through hard times. He fed them in the wilderness. He provided water for them in the wilderness. So when they poured that water out, it was a way of reminding them of that. But also it was kind of a prayer for water um, because uh, this is uh, a pastoral and agricultural society that absolutely needs rain in order to survive because uh, I grew up in Phoenix, Arizona. Okay, it's a desert. It's the Sonoran Desert. The only reason that there's a city there that's, I think, larger than Dallas now is because of the Central Arizona Project. They take water and they bring it in from the Colorado River and there are canals all over Phoenix. So as the result, when I was growing up, there were, you know, sections where there were orange groves. Uh, there's places where cotton is grown, but you can't do that in Israel. They require rain. They don't have an irrigation system like that to bring water in from anywhere. Uh, the closest thing to that that they had uh, were these cisterns that they dug. And this is essentially a plastered hole in the ground that collects rain during the rainy season. And then you cover it over and you draw water out of it. And then, of course, wells. Um, but their crops and therefore their, you know, herds of, you know, sheep and cattle and so forth require rain. So then Jesus says, you know, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And then out of his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. And then John tells us that he's referring to the Holy Spirit. In any event, um, Jesus has made these bold statements about God as his father. Now they thought of God, the, the children of Israel thought of God as their father, but more the way we should as we're and when I say we should, I'm saying in the natural, there's this tendency for people to say, you know, well, we're all children of God. Like all human beings are children of God. We're really not. Uh, we're kind of like distant descendants, right? He created Adam and Eve. And from that point forward, you know, we're created in his image, right? It's not saying we're insignificant. Um, so the Jewish people did understand that, right? Um, that but they also saw that Jesus or heard that Jesus was claiming this unique relationship with God. 
and, you know, making these very controversial and if he wasn't who he said he was, even blasphemous statements, right? Um, so, you know, they get into this huge argument with Jesus in John chapter eight and the conclusion of eight, he says, before Abraham was born, I am, they pick up stones to stone him. He's going out of the temple, still the same time period. Okay. He's going out of the temple and he encounters this blind man who, a man that's been born blind. He heals him, uh, more controversy because he, uh, of the fact that he, a, he healed the guy on a Sabbath and B, because of the way he healed the guy, um, the guy had to work. He had to go and wash the mud out of his eyes. Right. So then we get to chapter 10 and Jesus hasn't moved. Right. This is, this is a lot of material of Jesus, you know, talking largely and uh, this controversy going on between him and the Jewish leadership. But this is, you know, all within that time period, right around the Feast of Tabernacles. Um, and uh, so, uh, Daniel, was it you that was asking me just a little bit earlier how long these were? Uh, and they're eight days long. Right, you have the Passover. It's Passover is one day, but then there's the Feast of Unleavened Bread that follows it, and it's a total of eight days. Uh, the Feast of Tabernacles is eight days, right? So we're talking about a really compressed period of time where Jesus, you know, said a lot of very important things and caused a lot of controversy and dissension. Okay, um, there were people that believed in him and people that didn't believe in him. Their leadership wanted to kill him, so. Um, as he's talking to them, now he changes, uh, you know, he's, I'm the light of the world and, I, you know, come to me for the water. And now he says, I am the good shepherd, right? Um, and he talks about his sheep versus those that are on the outside. And uh, so they're listening to him. And what do they say? Dissension occurred again. This is John 10, 19. Dissension occurred again among the Jews because of these words. These are the words about the good shepherd. Many of them were saying he has a demon and is insane. Why do you listen to him? Others were saying these are not the words of one who is demon possessed. A demon cannot open the eyes of those who are blind, can it? All right. So um, I talked about this dissension and I just went back over it. Okay. Um, Inevitably, if there are people holding to the truth, there's, in, there's invariably going to be dissension if those people who are holding to the truth are in a larger group because the enemy, all right, the devil, our enemy, will be at work influencing people in the larger community to oppose the truth. You're never going to be loved by everybody. You just need to figure that out. Now, some people don't care. Um, if you ever listen to this uh, psychologist named Jordan Peterson, uh, he really has this peg. There's, there's this kind of this scale of dimensions in these various areas of personality. And one of them is agreeableness versus disagreeableness. Some of you are agreeable and some of you are disagreeable. <laughs> Um, we all have, you know, a tendency, I guess, to gravitate toward one or these other people that are agreeable, just want to get along. Can we all just get along? Can we please just get along? People that are just entirely disagreeable. I don't care what anybody thinks, you know? And so, yeah, I've, I've had a lot of disagreeable people in my ministry in the past. Um, but, um, there will invariably be people that will disagree with you, even if you are an agreeable person, if you hold to the truth, all right? Um, what the truth sounds like to 
a community of people that believe lies is it sounds like craziness or it sounds evil. Well, that's exactly what they're accusing Jesus of, right? He lands in the middle of this extremely religious community and they've been hurling headlong far away from uh, the, the, the scripture for a long time. They're purportedly, allegedly, you know, holding to the Old Testament law, but they've departed from that a long time ago because they interpret the scripture, the Old Testament now would be the scripture we're talking about, um, through the quote-unquote tradition of the elders. And what Jesus opposes when he's opposing these religious leaders is largely the misinterpretations or misunderstandings of the, of the scripture that had been held by the elders and passed along. I liken it to Martin Luther coming along um, in the early 16th century and confronting the Catholic church. Jesus was Jewish. He was confronting his fellow Jews with the truth, right? Um, and he focused on this area of the Sabbath and the fact that they turned the Sabbath into sort of this cudgel to make people obey them. The Sabbath reminds me of 2020 going into 2021 in this country and, you know, the pandemic. Oh my gosh, if you deviated from the standard norm, you were a demon, right? And see, we, you know, in this state, um, we got off a lot easier, uh, it's, you know, the, there are there are pockets of people that were very much like the the bluer states, and they wanted things locked down. Dallas County was like that with Clay Jenkins, um, who hates Governor Abbott, like just hates him basically. Uh, but they're just like butting heads and at odds. But Governor Abbott you know, opened everything up as quickly as, as he could. So we didn't experience the heavy duty um, lockdown uh, madness and uh, just the, the excommunication from the larger community if you don't wear a mask or, you know, there's something wrong with you if you haven't gotten vaccinated. And I'm not trying to relitigate that whole thing. I'm just trying to say that it was used to control people. Right now, we can argue whether masks were effective or not. A vaccine is effective or not. I'm not the Wild West. I got the vaccine. Maybe that makes you respect me or disrespect me. I don't know. Okay, I'm not getting any booster shots. Okay, um, we wore masks in here when the governor asked us to, and when he said we didn't have to, I requested but didn't require it. I was trying to hold a middle ground between people who had very strong feelings on both sides. And what I ended up doing is losing almost everybody who was hardcore mask wearing. Again, there's just no way to make everybody happy in these situations. But I'm only going through that again to try to put you back in that frame of mind where you've got people in power that are enforcing an idea and saying, everybody must believe the way we believe and you must do what we say. So Jesus lands in the middle of that and this is how they handle the Sabbath, okay? You are going to, the Sabbath wasn't just, you know, observe the Sabbath and keep it holy. It was, there is, you know, a distance beyond which you can't walk. You can't carry anything at all. It was just really extreme. So it's kind of like the test for Jesus to, um, uh, 
help them understand the difference between the scripture and what God really wants versus what human beings had turned it into, this tradition of men. Now, if you want to know a, a brief history, very interesting, the tradition of the elders was written down maybe a hundred or so years after Jesus, and it became the Mishnah. And that became so important that you had, um, you had the law, right? Law and the prophets, okay? You had the, the Torah. And then you had the Mishnah, but you're going to read the Torah through the interpretation of the Mishnah, which is the written down tradition of the elders that Jesus was responding against largely. And then you had the Gemara, and this is uh, the interpretation of various teachers of the Mishnah. So the Mishnah is tradition that is interpreting the Torah. The Gemara is interpreting the Mishnah. And then it all got compiled in the early Middle Ages into the Talmud. And this is what the Jewish people read today, okay? So Jesus is hopping over all of this. He's going back to the Torah and he's seeking to interpret it and to help people to understand the higher values that it's teaching. And that's what you find in the Sermon on the Mount. Now, I give you that long introduction to say, if you land in the middle of this heavy duty tradition that people you know, have been brought up in and believe, and you start saying something like the things Jesus was saying, and when he's telling them you know, that he's the son of God, well, they're just like, you're insane. But it's not just that. They said he was demon-possessed. Okay. He has a demon and is insane. Why do you listen to him? Well, those who don't understand scripture are devoid of the Holy Spirit, and they do not have the Spirit because they've never responded in faith to the gospel. So this happens with people today in our culture. If you go to various parts of the world and various parts of our country today um, where you have communities that really are no longer oriented toward the Christian worldview. Uh, they're unfamiliar with the scripture and they're being carried along by these currents of an antichrist culture, right? They may have a friendly idea of Jesus, but they kind of reinterpreted Jesus. He's not the biblical Jesus, but if you land in the middle of that community and let's say you preach sexual purity, buddy, you're going to be rejected outright. You're going to encounter some, not just disagreement, you're going to encounter hostility, hatred. You see this on these college campuses when um, various individuals go onto these college, college campuses and they're controversial and I don't agree with all of the things that, you know, these various conservative uh, influencers say. But when they're preaching, let's just say um, there are two genders, okay? Not dozens or scores or, you know, over a hundred genders. There's just, there's male and female, right? Well, that's, I, I can't understand how that's controversial. But see, when you've been schooled in an entirely different way, it's not just controversial. They think you're evil. I was listening to one of these guys, uh, I can't even remember which one it was, uh, but he's on a college campus and there is someone who is, I guess from the LGBT community or claiming allegiance there that was just, you know, calling him all of these horrible things. You're automatically a racist and you're a Nazi and, you know, you, you want 
to promote genocide and everything if you don't agree with this set of ideas. And so this guy is encountering that type of hostility that comes from this, um, you know, monolithic mindset, okay? It's just the era of social media has put us in a place where we, we seem to just exist in echo chambers, right? So if you're on Facebook, if you're on Twitter, which is now called X, Twitter is X, because Elon's got it, so it's cool now. It's X. I'm like, if I say I'm on X, I don't know if anybody's going to know what I'm talking about right now, so I'll still say Twitter. Nobody that I know is on Twitter. I'm just on Twitter because of news, right? And following various people that comment on the news and so forth, the various politicians and that sort of thing. Um, I might know five or six people that are on Twitter and they don't say anything. Um, but I'm still on Facebook, right? Uh, Facebook is just like the granddad of social media right now. And I think a lot of, well, there's not many younger people on Facebook any longer, okay? But we surround ourselves with people that think like us. We're in an echo chamber. We just want to hear what we've said back in our ear again. So when somebody lands in the middle of that and says something different, it's like, aye, 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 you're a demon. Here it is, right here, okay? But the thing is, you know, somebody can call you or I a demon or evil, and those terms are thrown around. But, you know, how is that harmful? It's just like, I, your opinion of me is kind of irrelevant to me, Um you know, if you can't honor me, you can't shame me. So, you know, I'm not terribly concerned about, you know, what somebody who says that. But here, these are Jesus' people, okay? And they're saying that he has a demon. Wow. Well, they don't have the spirit, right? So uh, Jesus' words are convicting. The Holy Spirit is convicting. In John 16, he will say, uh, that he's going to leave and he's going to send the spirit after he leaves and that the spirit will come to convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. That's what the Holy Spirit does. When people aren't paying attention to the Holy Spirit, they're not going to get any of the answers on the test right, okay? Um, so there are those in our world today who consider the Bible foolishness, who would even call the morality of Christ taught in the New Testament evil. Their view of the world is diametrically opposed to Christ. They're the ones that our gospel writer John would call Antichrist. Um, he uh, mentions this in his little letter, 1 John. These are the individuals and churches who have turned away from following the biblical Jesus. And we cannot be partners with those who refuse to confess that Jesus Christ is God's son and our savior and Lord. Now, I'm not saying you can't talk to people or befriend people. I'm saying you don't want to partner, right? That's the whole unequally yoked argument. You, I can... I go to intrinsic and talk to people all the time. And I know some of them, I don't get into conversations with them um, to cause controversy, right? If they want to ask me questions, I'll answer questions. But, you know, I know there are people there that would really, really be upset if I were to, you know, strongly uh, hold certain ideas. Now, they know who I am and what I stand for. And I've gotten into a few arguments over there. Um, but nonetheless, I can sit and have a conversation 
um, you know, I can eat and, you know, have a beer with people like that. But that's not the same as partnering with somebody like that, okay? Where there's a level of just even the kind of friendship that becomes closer, right? You can be a friend to anybody, but to be a friend with somebody involves mutual trust, and I can't put myself in a position where I'm entrusting myself to them if they don't, they're not willing to admit that Jesus is who he said he was, okay? Um, so the Apostle Paul said, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. So again, I said we're in this place where we're all in these uh, uh, echo chambers. I'm not advocating um, the creation of a Christian ghetto where we don't talk to anybody else. Again, I, I'm over here talking to marginal Christians and non-Christians more often than I'm talking to Christians these days, okay? But again, I'm not, you know, um, when the conversation starts getting blue or, you know, uh, if, yeah, they're not inviting me to, to wild parties or they, they know that's just not gonna happen, Okay. So all that to say, um, there's, a, there's a more important issue that I want to get to here since they said that he has a demon. When someone attributes what Jesus said or did as coming from the devil, or when someone associates evil with Jesus. Now, you see a lot of Hollywood movies that do this, okay? They usually, they, they take Catholicism as the boogeyman, Right? And it's invariably, it's they turn a crucifix into something that's horrific and scary, okay? Or they just outright blaspheme it. Um, when I was 11 years old, and when I tell you the movie that I'm going to t mention, you'll know how old I am, <laughs> or you'll be able to guess. Um, when I was 11 years old, uh, believe it or not, I was dating this girl at 11 years old, and she was 14. And we got to go to the movies, right? Parents drop us off at the movies. Dropped us off at the movies at Christown, right? Now, it was cool. They just built this movie theater. You, it was a multiplex, which was unusual at this time. And you went up this escalator, and all the movie theaters were upstairs. And then we're like, I don't know, it wasn't like 18 theaters like we have over here with AMC. I think it was like six or something like that, all right? But it was still really cool that there were like multiple theaters. Wow, you know? So... Um, we watched a movie and I can't remember. It was like a James Bond movie. It might've been Live and Let Die. Um, or it might've been American Graffiti. Oh, now you're getting that. Now you're understanding how old I am. See, 11 years old, Live and Let Die. Which James Bond was that? Okay. Uh, oh, American Graffiti. Wow. You really are old, Pastor D. Okay. So, um, my ride, my mom or my stepdad, whoever was coming to get us, um, I don't know if they were late or if there was just a miscommunication of time. But I finished, we finished watching the movie. Her ride, you know, gets there. And so then I sneak into another movie theater. Now, I hadn't made any kind of confession of faith in Jesus. I was just a, you know, average kid, you know, trying to, you know, do something crazy or whatever. And so I snuck into an R-rated movie as an 11-year-old. You know what it was? The Exorcist. Do not watch that movie. I don't care if you're 50. 
Do not watch that movie. It's evil. You want to talk about blasphemy, the way the priest is treated and the way she treats a crucifix, it's deeply, deeply disturbing. To this day, I only watched part of it. I had nightmares for a long time or I was scared I would have nightmares. I started sleeping with uh, my grandmother. My grandmother gave my parents a Bible when they were married and my mom gave it to me. I still have it. It's King James Bible. I started sleeping with that. I didn't read the Bible. We didn't go to church, but I started sleeping with that Bible under my pillow and I put my hand, because here's the thing. You say, oh man, it's just a movie. No, demon possession is real. And when you put yourself in a position where you start blaspheming God like that, you are on such dangerous ground, right? And, you know, I say that to just provide an example of the way the devil twists what is holy and beautiful and good. Apparently, there's a follow-up to the exorcist that's coming out, right? And they're doing the same thing because I've seen the, uh, the, the preview for it in other movies, right? And there's this, again, crazy girl, uh, and she says, and I'm not going to give the affectation that she does to her voice, but with this just very evil voice, she says again and again, and see, I only saw the preview, and this is stuck in my head. She says again and again, the body and the blood, the body and the blood, the body. That's the holiest moment in the Catholic Church, right? When the priest presents you know, and, and two weeks ago, we had communion here, you know, we present that, you know, this is Christ's body. This is, this is horrific. And we need to stop partnering with these sorts of people and these sorts of forms of entertainment. We really, really do. So this is an example of attributing something evil as good or good as evil. Okay. Jesus will forgive opposition. He said that, you know, if anyone speaks against the son of man, he can be forgiven. But to call what he did or said evil is going beyond opposing him, okay? Um, it's blasphemy of the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit is the, the person of the Trinity, the person of God that convinces us of what is good and what is evil, what is right and what is wrong. When you kick against the goads, see, it's different, okay? You know, you could have like a, I don't know, old school mafioso or something like that, right? And they knew what they were doing was wrong, but they did it anyway. Okay, it's still wrong. But that's different than saying, well, this is actually right. This is actually good. No, that's, that's the, the, the worst form of evil, okay? Um, it's a permanent and disfiguring sin. A heart so damaged will not repent. And according to Jesus, that's the unforgivable sin. Now, as my theology professor pointed out, and I have shared this because I completely agree with him, um, this sin, as we refer to it, is not just one thing you did one time. You said something terrible about God or you called good, evil, and evil good for a time or a brief time period, right? But you didn't 
harden your heart and damage your heart to such a degree that you have failed to repent, then that's not the unforgivable part of this, right? The unforgivable aspect is that you have pushed against the Holy Spirit until now the conviction of the Holy Spirit seems like evil to you. That's the the profound damage that people do to themselves, okay? Here's what Jesus said about this. Matthew 12, 31 and 32 they were, te- they were saying, the religious leaders, Pharisees, uh, were saying that he cast out demons by the authority of Beelzebul or Beelzebub, the chief of the demons. They were saying he's working for the devil. That's what they were saying. Okay. To that, Jesus said, I say to you, every sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people, but blasphemy against the spirit shall not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the son of man, now, by the way, to speak against, that's what blasphemeo means, just to speak against, right? But notice what he says. To speak a word against the son of man, it shall be forgiven him. So you might've gone through some period in your time, of time in your life when you were just so angry with God and you said mean things toward him. And this is, this is a scary conversation for you to have or scary thing for you to listen to, Okay. But have you repented of that? Can you repent of that? If you can, then you're okay. And you better. Because you can march so far down that road that you can't repent. That's when you're in danger. If anyone speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him either in this age or in the age to come. This is what these people were on the road to do when they said that Jesus had a demon. Right? The writer of the Hebrews reinforced this idea that I was just mentioning about um, the inability to repent. This is what he said. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. Now, again, if you feel repentant, remorseful for having done these sorts of things, then you're okay. But when your heart is so hard that you're just like, that's when you're in danger, right? So this opens up an important discussion about whether a Christian can commit the unforgivable sin. Can a Christian commit this sin? It would seem like something like that when you read this passage in Hebrews. But notice, in the case of those who have once been enlightened, ah, I see the truth, have tasted the heavenly gift, been made partakers of the Holy Spirit, have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away. This is like the parable that Jesus told um, of the soils, the parable of the soils, right? He talked about the, the farmer goes out and plants the seed, the, the, the sowing of the seed, they would throw seed out into the field. Some of it falls on the path, the birds come and take it away. He says, that's the devil that just takes away the word before it ever gets planted. But there is seed that falls on two different kinds of soil right? There's seed that falls among thorns and there's seed that falls on rocky ground. The seed that falls on rocky ground springs up, but it doesn't last. When the sun comes out and it gets hot, 
It doesn't have any depth of, of root, and so it withers away before it produces fruit. The seed that falls among thorns, right? It grows up as well, but the, the weeds choke it out. Okay, they're competing for the same soil, and they choke it out. So Jesus gives, you know, reasons. He, he says the, the, you know, the, the one that's sown among the, the rocks is, uh, you know, when persecution arises, okay, um, the cares of this life and so forth. The seed that falls among thorns, um, you know, this is the desire for wealth and other things, he says, you know, it chokes the word out. I'm mentioning this in, in conjunction with what we're talking about here to show you that there are people that go to church and they go to church for years, there are people that listen to, you know, A, B, or C teacher online, or, you know, maybe they're old school and they you know, listen to the radio or whatever. Um, but they don't really ever produce fruit, okay? Um, they, you know, they're just, they're all shoots and runners and leaves. And they're like the fig tree that Jesus encountered when he went into Jerusalem his last week on earth. And it had all these leaves on it. Now it was too early for it to be producing fruit. But if it had all those leaves, it should have had fruit. It was saying, hey, look, I have fruit. But when you looked under the leaves, there was no fruit. And Jesus cursed it. Okay. So I'm saying these are people who have been exposed to all of these truths that maybe they've, you know, they've experienced the presence of the Holy Spirit but they've never been transformed. They've never been reborn. Remember, Jesus was talking to a genuine seeker, a religious teacher in Jerusalem, when he spoke to Nicodemus. And he said, you have to be born anew, born from above, born again. If you're gonna even perceive the kingdom of God, you have to be born of water in the spirit or you'll never get into the kingdom of God. Now, this guy, you know, ended up, Continuing to be a seeker, he defended Jesus once. We see that in John. Uh, we see in John's gospel that Nicodemus went with Joseph of Arimathea to take the body of Jesus to the new tomb uh, and wrap it uh, probably rather quickly because they didn't have any time. The Sabbath was coming, but to, you know, to wrap it in, in, uh, in grave clothes and so forth. But we don't know whatever became of Nicodemus. Did he become a follower? We don't know. But the point is, there are seekers, there are disciples with a little d, but it doesn't mean that they've gone all the way, right? They haven't allowed that transformation to take place. Now, um, can someone who has been born again, okay, to use the old term, been born from above, can someone who is an authentic Christian, can they commit this sin, Right? Is there a genuine eternal security of the believer? And we're going to see uh, what Jesus has to say about that in this very next passage. And I'm going to answer that question before we get out of here. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place in Jerusalem. So now we finally changed time periods. The Feast of Dedication, does anybody know what that is? The Jewish people still celebrate it today, just like, you know, the Feast of Booze, uh, they still celebrate today. It's Hanukkah, okay? What time of year is Hanukkah? It's in the winter. At that time, the Feast of the Dedication took place in Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple area in the portico of Solomon. 
The Jews then surrounded him and began saying to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my father's name, these testify of me. But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. So now we see why John has connected this immediately to the previous passage where Jesus has talked about being the good shepherd. Uh, He said, my sheep listen to my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life. Now listen to this. Here's your passage about eternal security of the believer. My sheep listen to me. They listen to my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of, out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. I and the father are one. So before I get too deep into this passage, yes, there is eternal security for the believer. Yes, once you are saved, you're always saved. The question is, are you saved, right? Are you one of his sheep? Do you hear his voice? Are you following him, right? If that's the case, Jesus just made an incredible promise, right? Now, Just like sheep, and we saw the little video that I played a couple weeks ago, just like sheep that stray, okay? Let's say even a sheep strays and a wolf catches it and kills it. I want you to think with me. Now, that would be horrible, wouldn't it? Does that mean that that sheep no longer belonged to the shepherd that it ran away from? It does not. It's still his sheep. You follow what I'm saying? So when it comes to eternal life, the key is, do you belong to Jesus, right? Not have you, you know, had times where you strayed away and, you know, you sinned and you've had problems with God and all these other things. No, are you one of his? The thing is, what's your default? Oh, we, you know, we use that term a lot with computers, right? So when everything gets all messed up, This is the standard for any technology device. If it's just totally messed up and you can't figure out what to do, what do you do? (laughs) You you reboot it. You turn it off and start it over. You're like, what? It happened earlier tonight. I was getting the computer up there set up. Um, I got thrown off a little bit because I showed up. Uh, like I normally do around six o'clock and somebody had vomited a giant pile of vomit right out in front of the bench out there. I didn't want you guys walking around that coming in here tonight and you guys riding your bikes through it or something like that. Thankfully, um, I have an attachment to that faucet out there in the little entryway that I used to fill up the baptistry for a hose. And I still have the hose over there from the, uh, for the baptistry thing. I just left it out there. Um, so I just screwed it in and, you know, sprayed it off and sprayed it off and sprayed it. But that put me a little bit behind. So then I climbed up into the loft and I'm up there and uh, ProPresenter wants to install an update. Well, the problem is our computer is too old for the next version of ProPresenter, so I can't update it. But it just froze and wouldn't do anything. 
it wouldn't do anything. It's asking me, do I want to update? No, dummy, I don't want to update. You wouldn't update last time. You're not going to update this time. So what do you think I had to do? Yeah, I had to force quit that thing. Right? Now, in the old Windows machines, you did the three-finger salute, right? Control-Alt-Delete. And on a, you, you have a similar procedure on uh, Apple machines as well, where you can just force quit it and then start it back up again. And even then, it didn't want to work right. Okay? But see, what you hope that it will do is it will go back to the default settings so that it works again. Now, you think I've gotten too far afield, but there's a, there's a method to my illustration here. What's your default? If you find yourself continuing to come back to Jesus again and again, friend, you're okay. If I scared you earlier, don't worry. If you keep coming back to Jesus, there's some Jesus in you. You're one of his sheep. He keeps calling you back. You keep hearing his voice. You keep coming back. Yeah, just like Jesus said, every sin and blasphemy can be forgiven. It can all be forgiven, right? The people who need to be afraid are the people that don't feel any conviction. If you feel conviction, you don't have any reason to fear. You should be thankful for that conviction. Confess your sin, receive his forgiveness, and then don't let the devil be the accuser that keeps throwing his finger in your face, right? All right, so um, I want to make sure I hit, hit that and didn't fail to come to the conclusion of the passage by the end of our time together. Let's go back up to this idea of it being winter and Hanukkah. Um, time has moved from autumn to winter. Jesus is back at the temple. Now, we don't know if he stayed in the Jerusalem area during all this time or if he went back to Galilee and then came back. It doesn't say. We just know that, boom, now we are, um, we're in winter. So it's just a couple of, just a couple of months have gone by, right? Uh, you know, it's the distance between, well, we're fixing to come on, you know, that time of year for tabernacles right now. Um, since the Jewish calendar is lunar, uh, these feasts move around. There'll be, tabernacles will be somewhere between uh, mid-September and early October. And of course, you know that there are times when Hanukkah comes before, it usually does come before Christmas. Uh, this year, it was right at the same time as Christmas, right? So just think about, Basically, you know, end of September to mid-December. That's the time period we're talking about, that, that how much time has gone by. Jesus is back at the temple again. Um, we don't know if he, you know, stayed there the whole time, but that's, it says he's walking in Solomon's portico or Solomon's colonnade. So that's what we know, that he's back at the temple. Um, the topic of Jesus as the good shepherd is what ties this passage to the previous one. The occasion is the Feast of Dedication, which commemorated the rededication of the temple, specifically the altar in the temple, after it had been defiled by the Greek ruler Antiochus Epiphanes in the second century BC. The Jews had taken back their nation from their Gentile overlords, so this was a celebration of national deliverance. We don't think of Hanukkah as that. We think of it as the Jewish Christmas, where they light candles and give presents. But it's actually... Uh, a national holiday, nationalistic holiday, right? Um, and it has a lot to do with the temple and consecration and dedication to God, okay? Um, here's a little statement about um, Hanukkah or the Feast of Dedication as they celebrated it then from uh, 
Beasley Murray in the Word Biblical Commentary. The institution of the Festival of Dedication is described in 1 Maccabees 4.59. Now, that's an intertestamental book that describes uh, this time period and what went on. Antiochus Epiphanes, in pursuance of his policy to establish one religion throughout his empire, had forbidden the Jews to maintain their ancestral religion and laws and ordered them to conform to the pagan worship of Zeus. The climax of his attempt to eradicate the Jewish worship was set on the altar in the Jerusalem temple. Oh, it was to set on the altar, the Jewish altar in the Jerusalem temple, a pagan altar, probably with an image of Zeus in his own likeness. And on the 25th of Kislev, that's December of 167 BC, sacrifice was offered on this altar. Now, this is a pagan sacrifice offered on the altar, okay? In a heroic series of military encounters, Judas Maccabeus, and that's why it's called Maccabees, by the way, Judas Maccabeus led the Jews to victory over the forces of Antiochus. The desolated temple was cleansed and refurbished, and on the 25th of Kislev, 164 BC, sacrifice was offered, quote, as the law commands, on the newly built altar of burnt offering. The people joyously celebrated the rededication of the altar for eight days, and it was decreed that a like festival be held every year for eight days, beginning on the 25th of Kislev. All right. So <clears throat> that's the background of the Feast of Dedication. Jesus walked in Solomon's colonnade, which contains stones that dated back to Solomon's temple. Now understand, the Babylonians came in because God used them to discipline his people and they destroyed Solomon's temple, the first and most glorious temple. It was built by uh, Solomon in the vicinity of 1000 BC. In 586 BC, the Babylonians came in and tore it to the ground. They also destroyed the walls surrounding Jerusalem and they took all but the poorest people in the land captive and brought them back to Babylon. If you read the book of Daniel, and you remember the stories about uh, Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego and their unwillingness to bow down to the idol and all of those sorts of things. Uh, you know, the, the Hebrew children and how they wouldn't uh, eat the, the food of the Babylonians and they were raised in the Babylonian court. They were among the first group of captives that the Babylonians took away from Jerusalem when they went in. When they were first taken away, the temple was still in existence, but the Jews continued to rebel, so the Babylonians came in and just tore it to the ground, right? Um, the Persians and the Medes uh, took over Babylon, destroyed the Babylonians, and took power. And the first Persian ruler, Cyrus, let the Jewish people go back to Jerusalem and actually help to fund a rebuilding of the temple. And it took them a while to do that, okay? But that was the second temple. Herod, as in Herod the Great, the king that wanted to kill the babies, remember the king in, in, the, in the Jesus uh, birth narrative, okay? Herod the Great built this immense, elaborate temple complex that went far beyond that little bitty uh, temple that they had built, the second temple, okay? Um, so Solomon's portico had stones 
from Solomon's temple. So it's significant. It's significant that it's winter. Um, there may be some some symbolism there that you know this kind of this weather uh, is a it symbolizes the 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 frigid nature of uh, the uh, the Jewish faith in Yahweh at that point in time. How their hearts had become cold, perhaps. Right. Um, he's walking in Solomon's colonnade. The practical nature of that would have been it, it got him out of the cold wind. Okay. But it also kind of really matched the nationalism of the season because it is a season of rededicating the temple and Jesus is walking where the original temple still had remnants, okay? Now, if you go to Jerusalem today, they have the Wailing Wall, right? That's the only remnant of the, the Herod's temple that's left, right? The Romans came in in 70 AD and tore the temple down. They, they, they tore Herod's huge temple complex down and it's never been rebuilt, right? So when you see Jews today and their uh, affection for the Wailing Wall, you can kind of understand the significance of this portico and what it might've meant to them, right? Um, so remember, Jesus has stated, destroy this temple and in three days, I will raise it up. That was from John 2.19. But then it said, he was saying, that means the temple of my body, right? And he's walking on stones from a destroyed temple. Interesting. Um, so when he said that in John 2.19, after he had cleansed the temple, right, with uh, the, the whip of cords, to destroy this temple, I'll raise it up in three days. He was foreshadowing his crucifixion and resurrection. And this is fitting because he was walking in the oldest area of the rebuilt temple during the celebration of its rededication. That's why I'm putting these two ideas together for you. The resurrected Christ would become the cornerstone of the new temple and believers, are you a believer? Are you a believer? Then you're a stone in the new temple. I don't believe the temple will be rebuilt. I don't believe it has to be rebuilt. We are the temple, okay? Um, Jesus is the cornerstone of that new temple. The history and nationalism associated with Hanukkah would certainly be motive for the Jews to confront Jesus and demand that he tell them if he was Messiah. So Judas Maccabeus was their perfect example of what Messiah would be like, right? He you know, led the, the fight against the Greeks and took their nation back. And they didn't have it for very long, but they ruled over themselves autonomously for a brief period of time until the Romans came in and took over. So their idea was he would be a ruler like that. He would be a Messiah like that. He would be a savior like one of the judges in uh, their history who would would come in and, and fight against the, the Gentiles who had, you know, taken over at various times. And Jesus didn't come to be that. Jesus came to destroy your sin. He came to destroy your greatest enemy, right? He didn't come to promote capitalism. He didn't come to promote communism or socialism. He came to destroy your sin and make a way for you to get into the kingdom of God. That's what he came to do. He did not come to be a political figure. And there are people to our day that want to make Jesus a political figure. And he is not. Jesus is not a Republican. He's not a Democrat either. He's not. He's not a Libertarian. He's not even independent. 
right? He's here to build a kingdom within the nations or among the nations, okay? Now, one day he will return to rule with a rod of iron. At that point in time, I guess you could say he's political, but he's not. That's not what he came to do. If you're the Christ, tell us plainly, they said. Jesus said, I did tell you, and you don't believe. The works that I do in my Father's name testify of me, but you do not believe. Why do they not believe? They don't belong to him. You're not, you're not my sheep. So he told them by showing them. His signs testified to the reality that he was uniquely connected to God. He claimed to be the son of God and he proved it. Had these religious gatekeepers and rule makers been paying attention to the scriptures, had their value system been actually focused on glorifying God rather than themselves, had they been genuinely concerned about seeking God instead of self-seeking, selfish gain, uh, selfish ambition, then they would have realized that Jesus was the Christ sent from God. But they didn't acknowledge this and they wouldn't have even if Jesus had said, yes, I'm the Messiah. Do you know the only person that he said, said yes, I'm the Messiah to? Can you remember? It's in John. It wasn't a Jewish person. It was a Samaritan. The woman at the well. She said, when Messiah comes, he will explain everything to us. And Jesus point blank said, I am he, the one speaking to you. She was receptive, man. Right? Jesus has already said that he's going to call sheep from outside, you know, the, the, the Jewish nation and people. And she's one of those early sheep. Right? And unless I'm wrong, all of you are those sheep as well. All right? So he'd already made the case that these hypocrites didn't belong to God. In fact, he said they belonged to their father, the devil. That was 844, John 844. Carrying on the analogy from earlier where Jesus is the shepherd, they are not his sheep. They don't respond to his call to follow. Instead, they follow tradition and use it as a way to maintain control over the people. They don't believe and they won't no matter what Jesus says or does to prove himself. Then he says, my sheep listen to my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. Okay, so I do this all the time. And by the way, I didn't invent this. I got this from my theology professor as well. Okay, um, in Colossians, it says that your life is hidden with Christ in God. He's talking to believers now. He's talking to those that Jesus would say are his sheep. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. So humor me. This is where you get to participate, right? And do something. I want you to hold up your thumb just like that. Just like that. Okay, this is you. Your life is hidden with Christ. Now grab your thumb. In God. Now, please tell me how you're going to get out of that. Yeah. Please tell me who can get through that. You're safe. See, if you're saved, you're really saved. And you could wiggle. But you ain't going to get out. Because he loves you too much. And he's going to protect you. 
right? So this is the passage that supports eternal security of the believer. The key is believer, right? Um, he promised, John three sixteen, for God so loved the world, what, you know this, that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him, what? Will not perish. Now that doesn't mean you won't die, right? But it means you won't go to hell. You won't perish. You won't be eternally separated from God, okay? And then earlier in this chapter, he said, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. That's what the devil comes to do. But I have come to give you life and give you, give it to you uh, abundantly. Then he ends by saying, I and the Father are one. I will treat this more fully next time. He's already made an explicit claim to eternal unity with God the Father at the end of chapter eight. Before Abraham was born, I am. John's gospel begins with a prologue which affirms this from the beginning to end. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And then we find out that the word is Jesus. The word became flesh and lived among us and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. But the prologue ends, no one has seen God at any time, but the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. That's Jesus. The entirety of the gospel of John, folks, is here to convince us that the Son of God came to earth to die for our sins and rise from the dead. That's what John is about. And here it is again. And he's telling them very, very plainly. What is their response? They pick up stones to stone him. It's the same response that they had had in 858 when he said, before Abraham is born, I am. Okay, so I'm gonna talk about this more fully next time, but we are at a conclusion for tonight's teaching. So God bless you that joined us online and thank you that have joined me here.